Sunset Lake CBD is a majority employee-owned hemp farm located right outside of Burlington, Vermont. Before they started growing hemp, Sunset Lake Farms produced cream for Ben & Jerry's. Sunset Lake CBD doesn't use any pesticides or herbicides to grow any of its hemp plants, and they use organic fertilizer and other sustainable farming techniques to ensure the long-term health of the soil and to minimize their carbon footprint. So like all of us, my days are really stressful. By the end of the night, my kids are in bed, I'm taking a minute to chill, but I'm still unwinding. I recently started using the Relax Gummies infused with CBD isolate, reishi mushroom extract, and ashwagandha root extract. I'm really glad I tried these because they really helped me get ready for a good night of sleep, and I really think I sleep better, so I'd highly recommend it. Check out Sunset Lake CBD today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. That's sunsetlakecbd.com and use the code UNDERMINE for 20% off your order. Farmer-owned, Vermont-grown, Sunset Lake CBD. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. This is Undermine Season 4 from Osiris Media. Welcome to Episode 41. I'm Tom Marshall, and I'm your guide for this tour, Fall 97, the fish tour that defined a new generation, or at least it was a pretty good fish tour. We're examining every show from that tour on the actual 25th anniversary of when it was played. So today, 12697, 25 years ago, uh, fish was in Auburn Hills, Michigan. And joining me is uh, freestyle frisbee gold medalist RJB as my co-host. Hey, RJ. Hey, Tom. We're we're back again, and uh, you know the whole reason we wanted to do this this Fall '97 tour is so I could talk about all the shows I was at. So this is the uh, middle of the weekend of shows that I saw. I saw one before this weekend and one after, but I got to see the Cleveland, Detroit, and Dayton show and. This was uh, the Palace of Auburn Hills. It was where I saw my first two fish shows in 95 and 96, and I was really excited to go back. And it's where the Detroit Pistons played, huge arena. Um, Fittingly for me and for the Midwest, Bob Seger played the final show at the venue in 2017, and it was exploded in 2020. Um, And maybe people would say that it was exploded on this night in 97. But before we bring our guest on, uh, just ask everybody, please consider subscribing to Osiris Premium. You can support what we're doing, get a bunch of ad-free bonus content at osirispod.com slash premium. And if you have something to say about this show or any other show, please create a video, tag us. And uh, and put it on the on the internet's tag us on any social media platform. We're going to give away a handwritten copy of the lyrics to Ghost um, to one lucky person. And lastly, I just want to say, on December 11th, if you're in the Philadelphia area or you want to visit the Philadelphia area on Sunday, December 11th, Tom, Benji, and I and some special guests are going to be on stage at the Ardmore Music Hall, and we're going to be 
uh, doing a live show. It's going to be really fun. Um, we're going to have a, a conversation about Fall 97. And then we have this band, Cal Kehoe. Um, we have so many. These guys are amazing. We have Adrian Tramontano, Cal Kehoe, um, Jeremy Kaplan from Dogs in a Pile, and Chris DeAngelis uh, doing a, a, a set of music in tribute to Fish Fall 97. It's going to be really fun. So um, I'll put the link in the show notes. Okay, Tom, what do we do next? By the way, that band that you put together with uh, one of the best drummers in music today, I think. Um, and also Cal, my friend, one of the best guitarists. Well, anyway, every single person on on that stage is going to be incredible. Um, and I'm happy to be on stage with them. Honored. Um, we're also honored to have an exemplary musician as our guest today. He is Ryan Stasek of Umphreys McGee. Ryan, of course, plays bass for the band and is a founding member. Uh, and he's also a member of the band Doom Flamingo. Ryan was at this show in Auburn Hills, Michigan, which isn't too far from their home base in Indiana. Let's bring Ryan in from the waiting room, if I can operate the controls correctly. Uh, Ryan should be popping up any moment now. There he is. Hey, Ryan. How you guys doing? Uh, fantastic. Thank Great. you so much for joining us today to discuss a show you attend. Did he disappear? Oh, RJ disappeared. You and I can keep talking. Um, to discuss the show you attended back in 1997 uh, in Auburn Hills, Michigan, and you guys were at Notre Dame about three hours away forming a new band called Humphreys McGee. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. <laughs> I for the, way, the way that I see it in my head is you guys decided to jump into a car and go see fish. And for those of us geographically challenged, it's basically like driving from Chicago to Detroit. But I heard it was winter there, and I heard there's snow sometimes up in the Great Lakes. It tends to happen. It tends <laughs> to happen up there, yeah. What was, it, what was the weather like? It was pretty brutal, uh, as far as I recall. This is a long time ago. Um, one of the girls who went to Notre Dame with us, I, I think her family was from outside of Detroit. <clears throat> and we were able to stay at her parents' house. And I remember driving up was, uh, you know, if you've, if, you, if you've driven through Michigan or anywhere where you have icy roads or snow-covered roads, you know, it can be pretty dicey. Uh, and I think we were just... Uh, you know, more about worried about getting to the show on time, which we did and we made it. And, but when you grow up in Michigan, you're used to that kind of stuff too. So. Nice. And so Ryan, did you, had you seen fish a bunch? I know we got to hear the story from Joel about uh, the experience you guys had on the, the November 19th show of this tour in, in Champagne. Um, yeah. but where, what was this, where was this on your fish journey? Okay. So uh, growing up in Kalamazoo, I, I was older for my grade. <clears throat> where I went to high school. So I was driving first and I ended up hanging out with a lot of the seniors. Um, I went to a Catholic school and some of the freshmen weren't, um, weren't partying as hard as I guess, as I was. So I ended up hanging out with the seniors and, and they were very into the Grateful Dead and, and fish. And I was very much into hockey and heavy metal <laughs> and Pantera and, and, and uh, music like that. But from hanging out with them, they introduced me to the Grateful Dead and to fish and, and, um, I was unaware of who fish was. Uh, so I didn't actually start seeing shows. Um, they did play the Kalamazoo state theater, I think in 93. And I know they played the Marat, I think in 93, but 95 in Kalamazoo at wing stadium, where I cut my teeth playing hockey was my first show. And then at Notre Dame, um, I had 60 bucks in my pocket and I bought a ticket to go to jazz fest, jumped in a car. That's a whole other story and saw them at jazz fest. And then after that, I was hooked and um, Brendan Bayless and Joel and Mike Muro, we, we, we started to, a lot of my friends at Notre Dame started, you know, 
during our fall break or spring breaks, we started following fish around or catch as much of a summer tour as when we could too. So mid nineties. Cool. That makes sense. Yeah. My, my first show was the night after that, um, 10, 20, like 10, 28, which was the palace. Um, so around the same time and that, that, that first show, there's a, that's a great show. I'd never been to that, that place, but I feel like that venue was like a classic kind of smallish hockey, like hockey yeah. arena, right? Like the, the kind of places that fish would play in the Northeast. Yeah. Uh, the beautiful thing about being in Kalamazoo is you're right in between Chicago and Detroit. So you're still in an era where every band is playing arenas. And basically the transition days, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, everybody hits Kalamazoo. So when I was playing hockey or, or, or in high school, sorry, um, I got to see Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Beastie Boys, just, just Rollins band, everybody. And it was usually during uh, a weeknight or a school night. So there had to be some clever ways to, uh, you know, tell the parents I was going to a study group or something, or we'd have to sneak away to go catch uh, rock concerts. But that was fun in the nineties. Saw a lot of shows at wing stadium. That's incredible. Um, and I would just, what do you remember? Like, I don't know if you saw the, the other shows on this, like the Cleveland the night before Dayton the next night, but what do you remember about this night? Cause I feel like it's a little bit more of an intense show than the others. And it, it just, it's a very memorable night for me, but what do you remember just like looking back on it? Um, okay. First off, I just spoke with Joel um, through text delivery. I forgot that I went to the champagne show <laughs> until he reminded me. So I was there for that one. And uh, I know that they did a four song second set and he, um, we were having a good time. We might've been on some psychedelics and he called out every song in the second set almost to the point of, I don't know if you've seen Groundhog Day, but when Bill Murray looks over before the Jeopardy question happens, yeah, he's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's like Makasupa. And I look up and, like, what? and then look and they plan like, what the hell? So that was, <laughs> that was really interesting. And, and it's true. Like he, he actually called out all four of those songs. So that's uh, reignited some memories that, um, cause I forgot that I attended that show. This show I remember because of the weather and getting there. So not only is nature the first feat that we defeated to get there and felt great, but the first set had so many heavy hitters. Um, and I was such a fan of the early uh, compositions like Golgi Apparatus and Antelope and, and the jams in Bathtub and Foam and Maze and Fee. I mean, these are like, these are crazy songs to all get yeah. in one in one set. And then the second set, you've got the, uh, you know, set break. Everybody's talking about the first set. This is still in my first few years of discovering fish and, and just so excited to be traveling with my friends to go see this music. Um, and then the tweezer, Isabella, or I guess they call it, what do they call it? Tweezabella? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the twist, the piper, and then the book ending, which I always loved the, uh, the thematic book ending, the tweezer and tweezer reprise. So, you know, like you've been told a whole story. Um, the energy through that was just ridiculous. Um, my wife is going to kill me for saying this because she's from Knoxville, Tennessee. Um, I don't like Rocky top as a song. So <laughs> sorry. Sorry, wife. If she ever watches this or anything, um, and we're actually driving to Knoxville after we do this here today to see her family. But I think I left early because of that. And I knew it was the end, the weather. Yeah. And we wanted to get back to my friend's place so we could party and talk about the show and just be, you know, college kids. Yeah. Right. Makes you, sense. You, you gave us a good sort of summary of the whole show, but plunging a little bit deeper into, into set one. Um, okay. 
you said, uh, well, first of all, two things were happening. You were forming a new band, uh, forming Umfreeze, and you were there with the band. Is that right? Uh, some of them. No, oh, okay. it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a band trip. I think I uh, Bayless, um, our our manager and still manager Vince Iwinski was with us, and some other friends from Notre Dame. And, and um, I'm, I'm not sure if Joel was with me. And you personally had like a um, a uh, an affinity toward these like Golgi or some of these longer compositions. Well, I, so let me back up a little bit. I guess I was not a bass player yet. I grew up playing piano. Mm. Um, as I got into my middle school and high school years, I realized that piano wasn't uh, quite the mobile instrument to uh, pick up chicks with. So I was like, I should learn guitar. This seems to make sense. Uh, so I picked up guitar. And I've always been self-taught as far as uh, guitar, guitar and bass. But I was in, you know, some bad garage bands and played punk rock kind of stuff. And uh, when I went to Notre Dame, I met Bayless, and Bayless did not own a guitar yet. So I gave him my Les Paul, or lent him my Les Paul and my little PV banded amp. And I was like, you know, I'll play bass, like that classic. Uh, no one else is playing bass story. So my education or, or my knowledge and, or vocabulary of the bass was pretty limited um, from studying or being aware. I knew what the bass was and the type of music that I liked, but I didn't dig deep into the history of it. So really being able to see a ton of live music as becoming a bass player was awesome to see Mike playing and this era of music too. Huge Frank Zappa fan. Um, uh, that's why I was so infatuated with the compositions of how technical they were. Um, that stuff just blew me away. But I also loved the chaos and the risk and the fearlessness that was going on. And you could tell. And that's why I think Umphreys ended up being more of, you know, they say jam band. I don't consider, you know, whatever jam band, an improvisational band, because I get off on the insanity of every night taking risks and being fearless to connect with an audience member. And I felt like, you know, we can talk about this show specifically. Like I was like, man, I'm in it. I'm here. They're having a great time. You can tell by watching, you know, the smiles in their faces, yelling, jumping around. And I'm like, I'm part of this energy right now that's coming back and forth. And then they would get into these um, tight compositions and then they'd go into these really spacious, loose jams. And I thought that part was so cool, like Zappa, where he'd be conducting, you'd have these parts. And then all of a sudden you have this open section, like in Inca Rhodes, when they, when they get to the, the Rebask jam or the Lydian jam, and you're like, oh, it's blissful and you <laughs> like it. So <clears throat> I think that happens. I did, I did go back when I knew we were going to do this. I did go back and re-listen to the show to kind of uh, bring, bring my mind back. And I think that happened a lot in, that, in the second set with the tweezer where it just opens yeah. up in the space. And there's so much room for, for Mike to slap or be percussive. And, and as a four-piece band, one of my favorite things about Fish is that everybody is, is painting their paintbrush and listening. And it's not like riff rock which I'm a huge fan of. I love bands that have dual guitars and rage against the machine that have pentatonic minor riffs that are matching and stuff together. But I would love listening to them paint and how the lines would, uh, you know, be counterpoint and play with each other and just get lost within it and, and how they, how they brought you back. And this yeah. was also the, sorry if I'm jumping around a lot, but this no, was no. like the first, the first time too, like I remember at a set break, when they start with tweezer or whatever song, like it's going to be down with disease or whatever it's going to be. And everybody's anticipating that the party's going to start again. They have that, uh, the riff teases a little bit and then the, the, the tension release, the buildup. And then when it hits, you're like, 
fuck yeah. And everybody's, you know, into it. And, and I always, I just, I just love that about um, rock concerts and, and the band having that sort of power with, with the audience. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's interesting because I, I, everything you're saying, I, I totally agree with. I think the the first set um, I was going to ask you, Ryan, just because there's there's some great stuff in there. The the antelope that is just wild, and um, in the bathtub gin in particular, I hear Mike like so clearly doing like a lot of really interesting playing. And I'm just curious, like going back to this show, what do you hear? bass wise like what what do you hear now 25 years later when you're listening because i assume you hear the bass and you're kind of that that might jump out to you like what do you hear in mike's playing um absolutely uh 25 years ago too and again i, w- I was just learning so i was like a little kid in the library i was like i need to <laughs> i need to learn about Mick mingus i need to learn about jaco pastorius i need to i love mike gordon and what's happening in this world i need to go back to the metal bass players like cliff burton and see what they were doing so like i was just a sponge for for so much material because i didn't know how to play yet and i, I wasn't taking lessons so i was taking it all in i think in 97 specifically um, I wasn't at the shows 93, 94 and stuff, but, but I just remember there being that, that much space and it sounded like Mike, the rhythm section, but Mike specifically were allowed so much more room to play lead bass or, or just be more um, the focal point or at the center as opposed to just, just uh, like backup. But, but not always, you know, there were times where I think, I think I, I read somewhere they were, you know, everybody was partying. We were partying too, but they were listening to like a lot of James Brown and a lot of um, kind of rhythm section type funk music where the bass can be um, so important to me, especially after 25 years, know its role, like uh, become hypnotizing to the crowd. So if you close your eyes and everything, you're not focused on it. So I'm not focused on Mike at this point, but I'm hearing it and it's moving me and I'm understanding what the role of the bass is and what it's becoming. So everyone else has so much freedom to paint their paint um, on the palette. I think you I think you stated exactly pretty much what Trey had said kind of changed the band for the better um, uh, in this particular era and that was that Mike um, began possibly because of the funk influence and them listening to funk and partying and listening to James Brown um, kind of would would dial back on the lead bass a little bit and sort of just go into that that um, the funk groove which is more repetitive and more you know yeah yeah and, and it's, it's like a trancy yeah everything too but it's not, it's like a discipline when you know you're locked in um and 
the power you have on on the dancing, the crowd moving is incredible because <laughs> as music as musicians and as bass players, um, everybody likes to do fills at the end of bar four, or they like to just add unnecessary conversations just to do it. And, and it, during this playing stuff, you talk about locked in and staying in that groove and these tweezers and these songs that lasted 20, 30 minutes. There's those spaces where he's just owning it and, and disciplined and doing what I later came to understand what a bass player should do, where it wasn't um, talking when you don't need to talk, but, but you know, laying your, your, your role and your groove down and the power that that has on um, building up longer grooves. So the so when you do get to the point where where you've climaxed or or ascended, like it's it's even greater. It's even greater. So much respect to, um, in my learning from just going to a ton of fish shows. And Mike was very influential in in the beginning years when I was like, "Hey, I'm going to play bass." That's beautifully said from one bassist uh, to another or about another. Uh, I, I love that. And that's a good time uh, before we plunge into set two to take a little uh, quick break and hear from our sponsors. Hey listeners, I want to tell you about one of our great partners, DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. If you're a musician and looking to get your music out there, DistroKid is the way to go. DistroKid is available for iOS and Android and is now available in Apple's App Store and the Google Play Store. More than a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all other major streaming services. And with DistroKid, you can upload new releases, see your financial progress, get notified when you've earned royalties, withdraw money from the app, view and share links, check your streaming stats, and a whole lot more. DistroKid has more features than any other music distributor. Check them out today. Go to distrokid.com, that's distrokid with a capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine for a special offer only for our listeners. That's distrokid, capital K, dot com slash VIP slash undermine. Thanks, distrokid. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. And we are back with our guest, Ryan Stasek, and we're talking about December 6th, 1997, Auburn Hills, Michigan, a fantastic show. And Ryan, this show is known mainly, uh, at least among a certain set uh, of Fish fans, for its second set. And, and, and Fish must know this because without hesitation, they plunge directly into one of the most loved tweezers from this tour. What did you think? Um, yeah, I think going back to what I said too, when, when, when you're waiting for the first set and that being a doozy and everybody's talking about it, getting their beer and they come back the way they build up the tweezer in this, I think Trey teases the line. So everybody's like, okay, we all know what's going to happen. And then there's, and there's a little break of just the build where everybody's like, are you ready? 
I like to use the surfing reference. It's like a tsunami. It's like, okay, here comes the set. Here comes the big one. Better start paddling, you know, or it's going to knock you over. And and it's there and then, and it hits. And I'm kind of getting goosebumps a little bit. Like, I feel like I was back there. You're just, you're just dancing. You're going crazy and everybody's in it together. And then they get into the spacious jams and they're taking their time. And you're like, okay, we're going to, we're going to go on a journey. Uh, the listening is fantastic. Again, that era of space where you can tell they're having fun, but they're super comfortable with the space. No one's trying to rush the other person to either go in their direction or to, to another song or finish. And then the Jimi Hendrix hits and you're like, oh shit, here we go. I mean, who doesn't love Jimi Hendrix and doesn't want to hear uh, Trey shred some, some mean guitar, right? I mean, that's the, the recipe. It's perfect so far. And then twist and then a beautiful piper. I mean, the whole set is flowing and, 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 yeah. and they've, they, they don't take the, I don't feel like they take the gas off the pedal and okay. But I do like when they insert songs like train song and there's like a little, a break in between songs and stuff too. I don't feel like that really happens. I mean, even sleeping monkey is, is like a beautiful, slower tempo song stuff, but it keeps everything going before you bookend the story with tweezer and tweezer reprise which is, which is awesome. But a quick, a quick, uh, I don't want to derail too quickly, though. I do love that aspect. I try to do that. in when I write set lists, I love playing a song that might be like heavy metal for Humphreys and the next song being a, an instrumental country road, like real slow ballad, just to take people from one end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum emotionally. And then I feel like it sets up the next thing that you're going to smack them in the face with, with much more power. And I love being experienced that as a, as a fan too, with the way people craft the music. And I don't know if they're writing the set list or if it's in the head or if it's planned, but it's nice when you get something like um, antelope you're like, Whoa. And then train song and then bathtub yeah. gin. I mean, are you kidding me? I know yeah. I'm jumping from set to set. And no, stuff, no, it's but a it's good just, point though. And you guys, I mean, I'm free you guys do that really well. I think that's, and that's part of a balanced show right is like and give people a chance to breathe like you said but also like a little bit of a mindset shift and then you go right back into raging I, yeah, I, will, but I, I saw you um i didn't see so uh th- this is probably a, a a sort of a, a difficult aside to to uh, totally jump tracks but um umphreys mcgee played at um asbury park and um there's a way of watching because we were we were late getting into town there's a way of seeing or listening to the band that's at the stone pony outdoor stage um and you guys were playing and we just walked by and sat on the grass median like on this on the street outside and i would say you guys were doing a heavy metal concert that was like (laughs) completely heavy metal well there's two two reasons for that Uh, one i i grew up playing hockey and loving heavy metal my whole life and my nickname is pony so i kind of uh use that as a ridiculous um way to say that i get to write the set list for stone pony (laughs) (laughs) go go with your sister i know so so stone pony also because of stone temple pilots and the misfits and i don't know i feel like there's much more of a you have to pay an homage to the heavier stuff so um People, people have noticed this too. They've, they've, they've been like, oh, here comes the heavy shit if we're coming to the Stone Pony show. So even the covers, uh, if we do do any covers, they tend to be of the harder rock genre. Um, and then the metal, I don't know if it, if it organically comes out or, or we know that it's going to happen. Those are definitely more of our, 
full distortion riff rock shows at a, Stone Pony. Uh, okay, okay. So I wasn't crazy, and I'm a I'm a no. huge fan of uh, I guess you'd call it a newer song. Although I looked back and it's written in 2014, so it's not that new. Uh, no Diablo, which is about um, one of your guys' sons, I think. Uh, and, uh, gr- you know, growing up, a, a young kid growing up, I love that song. And I was thinking maybe I would catch it, but it didn't seem like it was going to happen on that night. <laughs> so that, that, that is when, um, if I was crafting that set list, it would be something like something would be a heavy hitter. Oh. And then we would put no Diablo oh. as kind of a resting piece, you know, get your, yeah. get your breath back before the, the next set of waves comes. And yep. then, and then, and then here, we'll let Mickey say hi real quick. She wants to say hi. Hi Mickey. Hey. <laughs> All right. Four years she's old. She's four. She's four. Yeah. Awesome. She's awesome. fun. She's fun. Um, so the, I would use that as as um um it's does now doesn't take away from the impact or the importance of the song. It's just I would use it more of, of an energy level of what it does because it is a favorite for, for a lot of people. But I think placement like that for tempo wise and 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 what's going on is it can be super important for for the live show. Well, sorry for the derailment. I love talking about all bands, of course, and because you're a musician with a with a great band that all, all of our fan base knows well, uh, it was kind of fun for me to talk a little bit about Umphreys. But uh, RJ, this is one of your favorite tweezers by far, right? I mean, yeah. not just in yeah. this tour, ever. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's so, like you said, right? I mean, it's spacious. It has these moments of like bliss, you know, where it goes into this like really nice melodic place. But then it also is sort of like searching for a while and it seems like they kind of s- stumble into the Isabella not stumble into it but it builds over a long time and I don't really know where the jam's going and then like like you said Ryan once it hits it's like holy yeah. shit you know and I think that's that's a beautiful thing too because you're guessing what's going on in the head of the four band members but you're so excited to be a part of it with the thousands of people that are there and then when it hits it hits <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. When so, it hits, you get into yeah. it, and then and then you're just like, oh my god, this is happening. Who? And then even in your head, you're playing that game. Did someone tease it? I'm gonna have to go back and listen. Was was there a tease, or how did they how did they get there? Did somebody just yell it out loud? And I yeah. don't I don't know. Do you guys know why no. it was chosen, or if it was just? I, I don't know. And you yeah. can't really hear some of these shows. You can hear Trey like he'll yell for a yell song, song, you know, right. but. But you, you, they just they just go straight into it like it's it's really it's a seamless, pretty phenomenal yeah seamless uh, yeah. segue.
they use this song as like a funk like every song this show almost has like one of those like very serious funk breakdowns including isabella which is it's cool. You get in, you get the rocker and then it kind of turns into a little the funky groove before going into twist. It's that yeah. like the Tweezabella, like you said, I mean, it's just, it's phenomenal. And I also remember um, a lot of, a lot of these shows. I, th- I think I did a fall break either in, in, or a spring break or a fall break of 96 or early 97 where Trey didn't Trey have the looping, the yeah. like that thing. And, yeah. and yeah. I remember, did it happen in tweezer? He, he even had that. It. He even had that. Like from the very first song, he, I think he had it in Antelope. He had it in lots of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when that would also like you'd hear it, I felt like that would trigger something. To be like, okay, this is not going to be a quick jam. There's going to be space ah. and things, or, or or maybe that was just something that that I assumed when that would happen because yeah. it would <laughs> it would allow it would allow space and then that that deep funk and 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 room for Mike to just uh, to get that bass love. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And like you said, this whole set is really just like one, one piece. Um, one thing we were talking about the jam, Tom and I were, do you guys, when you listen to it, do you think that the, do you hear it going in a specific direction? The the jam, the tweezer jam? Cause it does sound at points, like it's sort of like they're kind of searching and then they, they land in Isabella. And I hadn't thought about that before, but listening to it again, I'm like, yeah, it is, it is sort of like, it feels like searching for like half the half the jam, but maybe that's yeah. maybe that's how it always goes. But I wonder if uh, if the searching was more of the respectful um, discipline of knowing like, uh, hey, uh, we're not leading, we're not copying, we're going to see what settles. Because um, there's nothing more frustrating for me in an improvisational band when when you finally feel like you found your part. And you're ready to develop it, and everybody else is go get your sister, go get your sister, and everybody else is ready to move on, or someone else, or they or they pull the rug from you, and you're like, oh wait, I just figured out my counterpoint, or I just figured out like an idea for a melody. So I, I wonder if it's it's not as much searching as it's just respectful discipline to wait and see what is going to push to the forefront, and then what your counterpoint is going to be, and where it goes from there, and then again you get smacked in the face with the, with Isabel and you're like, okay, yeah. But I, I would love to know the, from the source, like um, how it, how it happened or who called it. Yeah. 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 I have, I mean, it's crazy. Um, Ryan, I have to, I have to ask you before we, before we wrap up, just because I know you have the stuff to do today, although we would, we could probably talk for a couple hours, but when you guys started, you know, pursuing the band in, in a serious way, I know that some bands in this, in this scene or some band, you know, you, you kind of have to like, leave your influences behind and kind of like stop listening to, you know, the dead, like Trey did or fish. Like I know like the disco biscuits guys, they were like, we had to just stop or else we would end up just sounding like yeah. fish. Did, did that happen to you guys at all? Like, did you guys, did it, was there a conscious thing where it's like, okay, we got to like, we got to, cause it sounds like you guys loved going to shows and had a lot of fun. Oh, of course. It's absolutely a hundred percent love going to shows and having the fun, but yes, uh, there was, I, there was definitely a conversation. And, and then on my part, there absolutely was because I was discovering bass. Um, I had even bought a modulus and, 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 I, and then I was like, okay, wait a second. <laughs> Everybody's playing a modulus right now and the sound and, and then my own self um, education going deep. I was like, I have to be cognizant of who I'm influenced by and who I'm listening to because when you're self-taught, you're teaching yourself, you're basically expanding your vocabulary and, and unknowingly 
giving a tribute or, or mimicking or, or learning from your heroes and who you're playing. So I had to stop listening to um, Fish altogether for, for a good period of time, um, as religiously as I, I probably did in, in 95 and 96. And that was probably from an educational standpoint, because I didn't know as much as I needed to know about the history of bass and James Jamerson and Motown and, and funk and jazz, jazz fusion. And, and I wanted to get away of, of the comparisons of being like, okay, your guys's band is just trying to be fish or trying to be the grateful dead. Um, which I think is fair. I think that happens to a, a lot of bands and a lot of listening. And um, the one thing I love about, um, being an Umphreys that if you took the six of us and you asked where everybody's roots were, what they listened to way, way all over the table, you know, like some are jazz, some are hip hop, some are country, some are metal, some are Beatles, you know, and then some are fish. And like, I was with Brendan at that time before Umphreys started, we literally played antelope every night at the bar because we only had three songs, you know, and we were like, all right, well, what do we do? We do Mike song or, or antelope. And I remember one of my um, more uh, Wookiee-ish friends coming. I was like, Hey, you guys think that maybe you should play something besides antelope every night. We're just we're like, dude, we just want to play the bar for beer money here just to, to get in. Um, so even that little thing might've said something in the back of my head being like, are you guys a fish cover band? Are you a Grateful Dead cover band? Or are you going to write your own music? And I think when you start to write, um, you do have to step away from different, uh, even though if they're your favorite or it's, it's, it's something you have to step away and get into new territory and, and listen. Um, that's why I still like to discover new music and, and, uh, it's much more accessible now to go down deep wormholes of, uh, music that people aren't familiar with at all and kind of listen and be influenced and, and borrow and, and learn from them. You know, yeah, it's, it's nice hearing you say it because it's exactly, you know, just growing up with Trey and hearing him as as fish was forming uh, break away from whatever someone might think that they're being influenced by. And yeah. go, like you said, going down the wormholes and learning, uh, you know, where those people were influenced is much more valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, yeah. Sorry. What, sorry. One last thing. Right. No, we, yeah. A lot of the a lot of the um, encores this tour. You mentioned Rocky Top. A lot of the encores this tour were like one short song, and it's it's sort of like because the shows have so much that it's like, you know, the the encore is sort of like a, a throwaway in a way. Um, do you see the encore as it, like in Umphreys or in any of the stuff you do? Uh, does that serve a different role depending on the show or is it because encores are sort of weird, you know, like sometimes I'm like, just, just end the show and like play another song at the end of the second set. But now everyone's used to like this encore thing. I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on how you approach that. I do. Um, it, and it, it's really in context sometimes, uh, and Brendan Bayless will tell you this. He is father time. We make fun of him. Um, I admire his, <laughs> I admire his punctuality. He'd never do well in a hip hop band. Um, he, but he is very precise about when we need to be done and how long we've played and what time we're supposed to start. So there's always been sort of a, a regulator on, um, okay, it's the encore. We only have time or we're going to get in trouble like seven minutes. So, you know, where um, I would say Joel Cummins, our keyboard player, and myself are more like, if you're feeling really good after two sets of music, you want to come over and put an explanation point on it. You know, so I don't know what yeah. Fish was thinking with a Rocky Top or anything. too. I mean, I had read or I had heard before that they were like, hey, I just messed you guys up so hard for, for a, a whole show that this is what you get. Or maybe it's for me. It's like, hey, Stasek, 
get out of here and beat the crowd and, and, you, and you, can, if you can get out of it. It's only for Rocky Top. Sorry, wife. Um, but I, I, for me, it depends on, on the encore. I, I feel like the encore, as an explanation point, is going to be the last thing most people are going to hear you do. So it's like a statement. And do you yeah. want that? Do you want that to be um, something that everybody's familiar with, like a cover where they can sing all the songs? Has something happened where someone may have passed away and you want to make a tribute um, or a nod in their direction? Or do you just want to unleash hell and give them a 15 minute version of your heaviest hitting tune, knowing that the lights um, are going to be a big part of it in the energy? It's kind of like a crescendo. A lot of pop bands or a lot of bands with production tend to save their um steam and confetti and and pyro and everything for that last song so i think it's it's always important to do that but fish is also a little different too because i think the people that leave on friday are probably going to be there saturday so it's not like it's right. not like this is just well one and done for everyone you know it's 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 kind of unique in that way yeah. so it's for me it's much more in context and it's also democratic you've got six dudes Sometimes we got a drummer who's who's like arm isn't working. He's like, I can't do a 15 minute metal tune right now. So you have to you just have you have to like you have to appease a lot of people before you go out and just uh, make the decisions. Perfect. Yeah. Encores aren't always awesome. a, gra a grand finale there. There's hundreds of reasons of which you named probably 10 just now. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's yeah, that's really thanks cool. For, thanks for explaining that. Yeah, it's great yeah. having a, a perspective of a, you know, a live musician. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Ryan Stasek, for joining us today, of course, of Umphreys McGee. Um, and thanks to my co-host, the mayor of Osiris, RJB. And thanks to all of you listening and the Osiris team. And thanks to Cash or Trade, the world's only social network where fans buy, sell, and trade tickets at face value. Check out all the tickets at cashortrade.org. And if you're keeping up at home, the next show is 12-7-97 from Dayton, Ohio. RJ's favorite show of the tour, maybe. Stay safe, uh, listen to a lot of fish, and blaze always onward. Thank you, Ryan, and thank you, Mickey. RJ. And thank you, who else? Yeah. It's Mickey, Mickey, Mickey. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Mickey. You. <laughs> Thanks, Mickey. Bye. Osiris. Hello out there. Yes, rock everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimba the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! Hey you, do you have any plans this year? Ha! How's that going? Do you get 2020? Well, welcome to a brand new podcast called 2020, where myself, Benny Goodman, and my good friends Corey Pazin and Siobhan Cronin from the band Lost Symphony also got 2020. And since the world ended this year, we decided why not just check in with some of our friends in the music industry and see how everyone's doing. We're going to get a candid look at life on and off the stage, as well as the mindset of some of the most successful people in the entertainment industry. New episodes drop every Sunday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can listen at Tuesday. 020-D.com, soundtalentmedia.com, or on your favorite podcast app.